0: is does my political flag or even my country's flag fly higher than the gospel flag? That's a really important question for us as Christians to deal with. And if we don't get this right now, the trajectory of what this could mean for us in the future, it may be that we align ourselves with political parties in a way that we, uh, we ultimately undermine some of the very freedoms we're trying to fight for.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to The Conversation.
2: Welcome to another episode
1: of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. Today in our Christ and Culture Conversation, Dr. Mark Liederbach will join us to discuss ethical hot topics. And after that, Dr. Keithley and I will answer another one of your questions and ask the profs.
2: But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. You've probably seen for hire signs everywhere. And it seems that all sorts of businesses are looking for workers. An October 14th article in the Wall Street Journal put it this way, 4.3 million workers are missing. Where did they go? Now, Dr. Quinn neither of us are economists and we don't want to give simplistic answers to complex questions but do we need to have a conversation
1: about the value of work absolutely and you're right we don't want to presume the role of economist or market analysts or anything like that but actually as of just this morning when I was riding into work I was encouraged to hear that some of those numbers are coming down that as government stimulus is dropping off that people are starting to go back to work but still it exposes a whole a whole category of questions for how we think about work let me make just a couple of points about that one is that work is still a good thing work was never a bad thing in yeah. fact we even though uh, in light of the biblical story work is part of Genesis 1 and 2 it's part of how God designed the world It's part of how he designed human beings to operate in the world and even though we we remember quite fondly and difficultly perhaps that uh, in Genesis 3 that work is cursed alongside other things Uh, It makes work hard, but work is still a good thing. You know, I like to tell my students what God made good, sin cannot make bad. It can just make it hard or it can make it perverted or twisted or all kinds of different things. But work is still a good thing. Secondly, not only is work a good thing, but work is a fundamentally human thing. It's part of what it means to be a human being. It's right and good for us to contribute to society, part of the flourishing society, and part of our, I think, responsibility as citizens in any given society is that we have something to give to it. We don't just take from it. Um, and so in our work, that's what we do. And in fact, to, to put a more particularly Christian spin on that, it's not just how we contribute to society, it's how we minister to society. Um, regardless of where our paychecks come from. You know, we, we tend to think in a in a in a context like this where we train pastors and missionaries or we are ourselves in the process of serving in churches and all types of, of different ministry work like that, we tend to relegate the work or the ministry to that. But actually for the rest of the saints in an Ephesians four twelve kind of sense, the rest of the saints who are being equipped for the work of the ministry, there in that context, Paul's not talking about the pastors and missionaries. There he's talking about everybody else and the gifts that they have been given and the equipment that they have to go and to contribute to society broadly, I think. Um, So bearing in mind, one, that work is still a good thing. Secondly, it's part of what it means to be human. And three, it is our ministry that we give back to society. And I would mention as well that societies tend to go better when people are active at work. I would just say this is not my area of expertise either, but I would say that there are corresponding trends between Uh, jobless rates or or low employment rates, and all types of mental health and depression statistics as well. And we shouldn't be surprised by that.
2: So there is a sense that work plays a central and crucial role to human flourishing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, Lester DeCoster Uh, wrote a a small little book a number of years ago. He was a Calvin Seminary librarian, of all things, but he wrote a book called Work, The Meaning of Your Life, and that's exactly what he meant. He meant that that our purpose in life, and he meant this in in the right sense, our purpose in life is to work. Now, he didn't mean that as though that we are merely productive machines. What he meant by that is that part of what it means to be human is that we give back to the world uh, in in a very similar way as Christ giving life to the world in John 6. In a fallen world, work has often been turned into enslavement in
2: the ancient world up through the 19th century in the United States. Then with the Industrial Revolution, uh, work became being treated as a
1: machine. But you're meaning something so much more than that. So much more than that. I'm not talking about an alienation of labor, per se. I think there's some insightful things that we could consider about that. I'm simply talking about it as Part of the way that God has wired us and hardwired us as human beings, and as, as therefore imagers of him, is that we're able to advance the ways of the king and his kingdom, that we're able to contribute to the good, the true, and the beautiful in ways that he intended in the first place. Now, there's still a million conversations to be had about what does that look like, and what's the best conditions for working environments, and who should do what. Plenty of those good conversations to have but let's just begin with the fact that human beings made in the image of God are made to work, for that is our ministry in God's world. Dr. Keithley, one of our core convictions here at the Center for Faith and Culture is that we can't put our faith in a box. We can't limit our beliefs merely to the sanctuary or to Sundays. Our faith can and should affect every part of our lives. Practically then, this means that faith should affect our ethical lives as well. How we live in the world around us, how we walk, how we talk, how we act, not just how we think, but all of how we behave. And
2: maybe you're wondering, what exactly does that look like? And how should my faith affect my ethical convictions? Well, Dr. Mark Lederbach is professor of theology, ethics, and culture. He's also the dean of students and vice president for student services here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he's the co-author with Evan Linnell of a new book on this topic. It's called Ethics as Worship, the Pursuit of Moral Discipleship. Dr. Lederbach, thank you for being with us today. No,
0: oh, it's it's my pleasure, and I'm delighted to be with you guys. Thanks for having me.
2: So what is ethics, and why should everyday Christians care about this topic?
0: Well, you know, it's it's actually really a fun conversation starter that you asked me this question. I like to say it this way. Oftentimes, that students come into my uh, undergraduate or graduate classes, and they think what they're getting is don't drink or chew or go with boys or girls who do for graduate school credit. And uh, unfortunately, our sense of the word ethics in our culture has really lost its meaning, And it's kind of been devolved down to just simply uh, morality or moralism. We may even describe the problem of this within evangelicalism as something that we could uh, put a label to. We call it evangelical Phariseeism, where we're so focused on behavior that we lose kind of the heart of how our faith in God and his, his not only his grand design to create the world, but to guide us in how best to live in it. Is, is how we should think about ethics. So instead of just a system of rules that we show off our ability to keep standards, we're actually trying to think through what would most thrill the Lord by the way that I live. So when we think about ethics, that's where
2: we wanna go. I think that um, what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is that we really need a robust theology of creation and no doubt a reevaluation of our theology of the body and in all of that, you describe ethics as a form of worship, or it's ultimately about worship. Uh, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, we, we actually do a
0: good bit in the book to set this context up from the beginning so that our readers can can taste something that's really important about the discipline of ethics that we frequently don't get when we talk about morals. And that is that if if it's true that God created the world, if He it was in the beginning, in, in fact, he's been eternally existent and he's been delighting within the trinity in one another then the creation itself is an overflow of this mutual love between the father son and the holy spirit and as god creates and speaks the world into existence he does that in a kind way that reflects not only his greatness but also his goodness and so the world then is formed in a way where where he's maximally glorified but if we follow the principles by which he lays out for us to live, we'll also maximally live as human and render to him the glory that he's due. So a good way to start even answering that question is just to start where the Bible does. The first four words of the Bible say, in the beginning, God. So the creation then, as you read Genesis 1 and 2, is really not a story about creation. It's about the God who does the creating. And you follow that up all the way through Genesis chapter 1, and you see that the center of the story is not, oh, look, there's, there's dogs and there's cats and birds and trees. Rather, this, every line of Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God. God did, God made, God created. And because of that, if we see God as the center of the story, then we begin to see that the creation itself was made for him and by him, as Colossians chapter 1 will tell us. It all comes through him. It's ultimately for him. So when we think about ethics as worship then, The way that we live our lives is meant to be something that places God at the center of the story, not asking, how does God fit into my story? So if we begin reading the Bible that way, then we begin to see that the laws that God gives us, the moral commands that he gives us, the Ten Commandments themselves, are all meant to be a way that we can learn to live maximally in the world according to the way he created the world. And by doing so, not only will we be really, in some ways we could describe, fully human or most human. But God will be maximally glorified by us living according to his plan. So ethics then becomes the pathway to a a paradigm of worship.
2: One of the places that our ethics then impacts the way we think about living is especially in the area of medical technologies. Mm -hmm. I think we would agree that God has given us the gift of medical technologies and So many of those technologies, I'm thinking of medicine and antibiotics and surgeries, these are all gifts and these are good things, but they also can be abused Mm. and or else they have to be thought about very carefully. Can we talk about some of those technologies uh, at this time? Thinking about abortion. Abortion is in the news right now with upcoming challenges perhaps to Roe v. Wade. How ought Christians to be thinking about these things?
0: yeah you've really kind of opened pandora's box with that question and so i'll I'll limit my thoughts to kind of a preliminary comment and then come back to an abortion discussion piece on that Um, when we think about why we have these questions in the first place why do we need medical technologies in the first place is that going back to what we were just talking about genesis one and two tells us how god created the world we find in genesis chapter three is sin enters the world humans rebel against god and because of that The creation itself begins to groan. It's cursed because of the sin of human beings. And human beings then begin to experience things they were never designed for, uh, all under the sovereign plan of God, and yet God allows the sinful choices of humans to impact the created order so people begin to experience sicknesses. The ground starts to grow things it wasn't maybe supposed to grow in the beginning. We're going to have to toil in the dirt, as Genesis 3 then tells us. So because of that, then, what we find, is that you have this really interesting connection. In Genesis chapter one, God creates humans in his image with the ability to have reason, to think well, to actually create technologies. In Genesis chapter three, however, we move to a place instead of beautifully making the world more flourishing as God designed us to in the garden, we're now struggling against what God wanted us to be in harmony with. So as this takes place then, the problem isn't technology, the problem is how we develop them and what we use them for. So you take something like splitting an atom. You can use it to warm a home with nuclear heat or you can use it to blow up a building or blow up a planet if you want to. Similarly with technologies that you use in medicine, the technologies themselves can be used in really beautiful ways. They can also be used in very destructive ways. Abortion would be an example of how a technology like doing surgery can be used specifically to kill and to do it in a murderous way. Right. So when we, when we go after this, we don't want to make the technologies being used the devil, but rather the human sinner using them in a the poor way uh, to do something contrary. In this case, abortion then raises questions about the sixth commandment, where God tells us not only are humans made in his image, but we shouldn't murder them. We shouldn't take their lives unjustly. And that's how I'm defining murder as the unjust taking of an innocent human life. So in this sense, then when you have not only uh, something from the moment of conception being alive, it's clearly human. And from that point on, it's an image bearer from the moment of conception that h- comes under the protection of the Sixth Commandment and the creation mandates. Uh, so we would then move into discussion of ab- abortion that way.
1: Dr. theaterbach when you talk about this, you mentioned it's Pandora's box when you talk about abortion. and But it seems to me not because it's all that complicated, it's right. just because now the, the Rhetoric is charged. It's just a hot topic. Uh, There's now so much litigation and money and funding and a host of other things that are tied into it. But the common objections, at least two of the common objections from the other side of the abortion issue, some, some of which would come from those claiming to be Christians and some not they'll say, but what about women's rights and what about women's health? How do you respond to those kind of objections?
0: Well, I I think it's really important for us to recognize that uh, the honoring and the right and proper and good honoring of women's rights and women's health does not necessitate the taking of innocent life in a murderous fashion. So sometimes we conflate arguments that we need to separate for some clarity on this. We as Christians, um, because the Bible is so creation-affirming. Remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. So therefore, creation is good. The human bodies that we have are good. Maleness and femaleness, that binary that God puts in place on purpose, those are all very good. The reproduction is all very good. The problem then is, is as we think about this issue, is we should champion women's rights. We should champion uh, the health of women. I'm not sure that we should conflate, though, the idea that someone has the autonomy and the choice to take someone else's life in mm. order to protect a person's um,
1: health or rights, and that then becomes the crux of the issue. So similar conversation, but we flip to the other end of life, and this is often an accusation against especially conservative Christians, hey, you guys stand up for the unborn, but you don't stand up for those who may be condemned to the death penalty. Mm -hmm. How do we think through those kind of things? Yeah, the distinction I
0: think that's crucial there is to recognize the word innocent life, Mm -hmm. that uh, scripture is very pro-life, but it also recognizes that um, human beings can also do things to incur a death penalty. It's the same reason why um, you think about if there is just reasons to uh, have someone face the consequences for their choices or punishment, for example, putting someone in jail, somebody has done something in order to make it appropriate to punish them or to do something retributive towards them in order to protect society as well as even to honor them as an image bearer. So if somebody does something that's guilty, then there's a justice involved with addressing that guilt. Well, you look at a a newborn, or excuse me, even someone from the moment of conception, they've not done something, it's not a morally willful choice to do something that requires a death penalty. And that would be the distinction. If somebody does something that earns them a certain kind of punishment, then Mm -hmm. whether it's putting them in jail or taking their life in both cases, there's a, it's an apples and orange context.
1: Let me ask you this, and we'll ask about, talk about some more specific things in a minute, but we could, whether we're addressing um, homosexuality or we're addressing abortion or in vitro fertilization or a variety of other uh, really important and hot ethical topics, is the point for Christians to have the right answers to these questions, or is it more about a framework with which we approach these? It seems to me—and here's here's part of the background to my question, Doc—it has to do with um, uh, perhaps in my own upbringing, I was, I was taught to believe that everything's really black and white. Mm-hmm. And if you just have the self-discipline to always choose the right answer, then life will go a lot better for you. But I don't know about you guys. The older I've gotten, the more gray things have become. Things are just not always that simple. So how how does a proper ethical framework and Christian framework help us to approach some of these really complicated things, but also some things that are just more ordinary, everyday life matters of morality? It's a great
0: question, Ben, because I think what sometimes happens is we almost want to reduce the Bible to a textbook that, uh, you know, you're the Bible answer man, if you can give the exact right answer on that. Well, what we want to affirm and defend with everything we are is that the Bible is sufficient. It gives us everything we need for life and practice. But if you look up, and probably the best way to get after this question, if, if I ask you, okay, the Bible is sufficient to answer the question of cloning. Okay, go into your Bible's concordance and look up cloning. Right. And guess what you're not going to find there? You're not going to find cloning. <laughs> right. So what we have to do is we have to determine when we say this, the Bible is sufficient, it's giving us principles for life. As well as crucially, and I think a lot of times we leave this out, it gives us principles for how to develop the character to do the right thing as well. So we want to not only um, have the principles for action, we want to have the principles to be the right kind of person, to have character involved. And both of those are crucial for answering this question because I can go into the sixth commandment and understand, okay, it tells me thou shalt not murder. I'm gonna have to do a little work with what the word murder is. As it's translated into English, the word rutsak there means really uh, neglecting the proper care of innocent life. Okay, that's a pretty broad idea. Not only does it tell us what I shouldn't do, but it also is involved in that is I should probably be involved positively in protecting Mm. innocent life by the way I live my life and the things that I'm doing, the things I even do medically with technology. So with that in mind then, the question then becomes twofold. Are there specific paradigms that the scripture gives us even beyond that on how to think through a particular issue like abortion, and vitro fertilization, cloning, any of those things that I can go into that? But am I also the kind of person that's developing the character right. that says, I want to be someone that's known for honoring life, right. and I live my life in such a way that I'm becoming more and more a life honorer, someone who is looking to help people flourish, not just avoid sin. Hmm. So there's a both and, I think, involved in our ethic.
1: The the acting upon the right decision, the right action, while also cultivating the right virtue exactly. along the way, both of these yeah. things.
2: Over the last couple of decades, I think we could see certain arcs or certain narratives, certain trajectories. Uh, I think that uh, anyone with any amount of foresight could see that the the matter of sexual ethics in relationship to uh, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, you could see those things coming think We're all surprised at how quickly things have yeah, changed. Yeah. Look in your crystal ball. What topics are Christians not talking about? Uh, what, what's something that you may see on the horizon or you can see ahead that perhaps we should be giving more attention to it?
0: I really like what you said and the way you frame the question, Ken, and that is, and Roe v. Wade is a great example of this. Things that uh, you see happening now should we be able to follow an arc to what might happen in the future? And Roe v. Wade was a great example. If we look back 50 years, when Roe v. Wade was passed, it's it's really not hard to see at some point the question of euthanasia, the other end of life that you brought up, and is going to start to then become a question because if you surrender on the front end, the moral question is very similar on the back end, right? So a trajectory of thinking that, that we move down. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. It's not a, a necessary slippery slope, but on the other hand, it's something we can start to look through on that. As soon as we have a sexual revolution, you're gonna to begin to see, uh, and with the advent of the pill, you're gonna to begin to see that there's gonna be a loosening of sexual standards, right? Well, along the lines then, it's not a surprise as soon as you move past those places that you would hit a LGBTQ moment. So one of the places in the future that we're gonna to have to pay attention to is what's next after an LGBTQ moment, right? We, you start adding plus sign to the end of that, and no telling where that goes, right? So the undermining of sexuality in a binary point of view is one way that we see that. One of the places I'm most concerned now directly uh, to your question on that is, I'm asking a question as an elder in my local church, is what has the mask mandate and the mandates in regard to vaccinations that may be coming very soon, how is that affecting my church members? And as my church members are now placing mask mandates in such a place where they're willing to leave churches over that. That's telling me something about the way we're understanding ecclesiology, the way we understand what does it mean to be a member of a local church. And I'm suspicious that related to this, and one of the things I want to spend some more time thinking through is the danger for us as Americans to actually think that libertarianism is more of a powerful binding on my soul and on my sense of rights than a biblical notion of what it means to be an image-bearer who's willing to give away all my rights for the sake of loving God and loving neighbor. So this is really important because it raises the question for us within our local church environments, is does my political flag or even my country's flag fly higher than the gospel flag? That's a really important question for us as Christians to deal with. And if we don't get this right now, the trajectory of what this could mean for us in the future it may be that we align ourselves with political parties in a way that we, uh, we ultimately undermine some of the very freedoms we're trying to fight for right now. I'm particularly interested in the idea that people are saying, I have a right, I have a right, I have a right, you shouldn't le- uh, legislate morality towards me on these different issues. That same kind of thinking tends to make personal autonomy and my own ability to make decisions in this world reflective not on the scripture binding and guiding me, but rather what my conscience tells me I should or shouldn't be able to do. And these are tricky waters because if we give full right to the conscience, then we're actually uh, giving the same moral foundation to critical race theory in the name of trying to say I don't need to wear a mask to church. So these are subtle and very important lines of thinking that if we're not careful, we'll try to argue against something like critical race theory, which I think we should, but at the same time almost adopt an individualized point of view about what truth is that is almost making the same kind of argument. And if we don't think this out 10 or 15 years down the road, this could be a really dangerous place.
2: I think the thing that evangelicals do that is a gift to the church is that we emphasize the necessity of personal individual conversion. Mm-hmm. That unless uh, each and every person uh, uh, decides, chooses, repents of their sin and tr- places their faith in Christ. They cannot assume that that uh, the corporate church will save them. The fact that they are part of this community that they each and every person must come to that point of decision. The downside and the danger of that is the I- is that somehow evangelicals can get the idea that that salvation is. An individualized thing mm-hmm. that we are saved through the community of the church it is it is the preaching of the gospel in the community and we're never saved in isolation to have uh, as Tom T Hall headed in the song years ago you know me and Jesus have got our own thing going right uh, so if I hear what you're saying is um, yes to individual responsibility yes no personal autonomy
0: yeah well let me give a little bit more thought to that specifically it was autonomy that got us into Genesis 3 sin this idea that I think I'm separate from God and I can just make my own decisions the Enlightenment introduced to us um, the idea that human beings are autonomous that we're individuals and that pragmatism is the way to make decisions and that unholy Trinity of the Enlightenment is one of the things that we as American Christians are in danger of elevating to the level of uh, our final source of authority. I'm my own person, I'm an individual, you can't tell me what to do and I'm gonna do whatever works. Now the danger of that, while we wanna protect the priesthood of the believer and the ability of the individual conscience to make some decisions, my conscience doesn't overrule what the scripture tells me. And the danger with us of elevating autonomy, individualism and pragmatism so high is that we start to think not, not what does the Scripture tell me about how I ought to live, but we start to think what works, and particularly what works for me. And if we're not careful with that, that will lead us to a place where, as we see in the, book, uh, or in the book of Judges or in other places in the Old Testament, everybody does what's right in their own eyes.
2: And, and interestingly enough, this emphasis on expressive individualism as Charles Taylor calls it, uh, shows up both on the left and on the yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, on the left, uh, this means that I have the ability to, um, uh, to identify myself uh, however I so choose, mm-hmm. even if it requires um, medical or, or surgical procedures to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we see on the left. On the right no one is going to tell me what to do when it comes to these issues regarding my own health, regardless of how my personal decision might end up affecting the community. I almost said infecting, but you get the idea. Uh, So we have really, at at the end of the day, the same issue on both sides.
0: Yeah. In one sense, you think about, don't tell me to put a mask on is keep your laws off my body. Yeah. Don't tell me not to Terminate my pregnancy is keep your laws off my body. It's the same basic motion of argumentation. Now, people have very different intentions in what they're trying to do, but we have to think better as Christians. We need to outthink these and outlove these ideas. You know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to make the argument for in Ethics as Worship is that when God creates the world, He creates it according to a pattern, and the scriptures give us two things. It it functions as revealed reality. It tells us the story of how God created the world through a creation, a fall, a redemption, and a restoration paradigm. So in many ways, it gives us the box top for a puzzle. But in trying to put that puzzle together, it also gives us the specific ways on how to do that. So it not only revealed reality, it tells us revealed morality. How do I best live the life that gets me so that I'm in accord with that box top? So in this sense, then, what we're trying to argue on any one of these issues is not just what do the scriptures teach us in terms of rules, but how do I see my world correctly? And once I see my world correctly, then the rules help guide me in that. And this is why the Christian flag needs to fly higher than any of these other flags. And I need to be able to outthink even something like enlightenment philosophies that may be underlying a lot of the ways I approach these issues.
1: Mark, you mentioned LGBTQ, and now we have the plus on the end, which perhaps as you sort of moved back from uh, Roe v. Wade to then the pill to then the LGBTQ movement (laughs) that uh, now we put a plus on the end of it. We can anticipate the direction. It's just hard to know exactly what shape it's going to take. It seems like weekly I have people asking questions about the future of transhumanism and of artificial intelligence and how it how it will become part of more of the human experience, the human body, as we, I've heard some even say, as we renovate ourselves. That could be about sexual identity. That may be just about further enhancing our own abilities. How do we anticipate and think through these things Christianly?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question, Benjamin. You go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 in the creation mandate, uh, where God gives us the freedom to subdue and rule the earth. But we got to keep in mind at that particular time, there was no sin involved. So humans were in, in the beauty of how God created the world, given the ability to develop technologies, to make the earth uh, flourish in beautiful ways. The problem is, I think, when we start to introduce technologies that will undermine the very humanness of what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a sense in which we're going to have to wrestle. And I have just honestly have to say at this particular moment, I don't know the answers to this question But the more we undermine human essence, for example, what you just alluded to, we have image bearers made in the image of God as male and female. When we get rid of that binary and make that plastic, and we just say there is no binary, there's really whatever you define yourself to be, at some fundamental root level, you're undermining the very essence of what it means to be a human being. So if we develop technologies that make it possible for me to either Uh, shape my body to look a little different or to add things to my body that erase those fundamental elements of what it means to be human. At that point, I think we're crossing over into a realm that we're not simply working with the creation order. We're dominating it in a way that uh, in terrain that's only left that really should be left to God. The problem with ethics when we start to anticipate that is that you could have said the same thing about aspirin a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. Right, So we're having to do a lot of nuanced work in ethics with these new frontier kind of technologies that try to hold on to certain principles that we know are non-negotiable in new contexts that are are very difficult. And um, as we anticipate what's coming with transhumanism, xenotransplantation, um, even artificial intelligence, where we might have a stream being fed right into my mind through a cochlear implant, those kinds of things, I'm not sure that we can say 100% that they're wrong But we have to try to think through what are the principles that come out of the scriptures that would guide our use of those in appropriate ways. And when we get to a place where they may be undermining the very essence of what it means to be human, that we're going to have to say, yeah, it may be pragmatic, but it's, it's not right.
1: Yeah, that, that, that last part, and you, you ended the way that you started, the, it seems to me the the better we understand what it means biblically to be a human being, and that's a huge question in and of itself, but the more that we steep ourselves in the understanding of Scripture and the narrative of Scripture for what it means to be human, human, being mindful that the most human person ever to live is Jesus himself. Um, the, the better we understand that, the, more, the better that we can answer these kind of questions as they come to us.
0: Yeah, can I go back to just use in vitro fertilization as an example of this? Um, a lot of Christians, very conservative ones, very strong biblical-based Christians. In fact, some of my colleagues here who I have the utmost respect for have a difference of opinion about the application of this particular technology. What, one of the ways that we would try to na- navigate the questions are, Okay, the Lord wants us to be able to have procreation. It's part of the the creation mandate. But now you're taking the gametes, the male sperm, the female uh, uh, egg, and you take them out of the bodies, and you have them unite in a Petri dish through a third person making that take place. Now, that's possible to use the husband and wife's gametes to do that. Once you do that, that's still the gametes are still from within the marital context, so we, have, we don't have so much problem with the gametes coming together. But as soon as you have a third person, a doctor, you have a third person involved now in a reproductive process. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it does introduce a new question. Have you brought something new into the marriage that wasn't meant to be there in the first place? Okay, that's, that's one angle of it. But now you do donor sperm, you do donor eggs, You add in surrogacy. uh, You add in the possibility of freezing life for indefinite periods of times uh, in order to then try to harvest them later to have children. Think of that language I just used, harvest these eggs in order to have children.
2: Let's go a step further. They're now talking about being able to take a same-sex couple Mm -hmm. and use skin cells or cells from other parts of the body to develop those into reproductive cells where you can have two men or two women now be able to conceive from the DNA of, of the partners to where now you have uh, a child born of a same-sex couple.
0: Yeah. So you think about the technology is stunning. The application is horrible. And so because it's undermining marriage, it's undermining some of the nature of what it means to be a human being. It It, it places us in moral categories where... You actually can go back to the Ten Commandments and ask questions about the nature of human life and whether or not it's right to to kill multiple conceptions in order to get one viable life, whether or not you've brought new elements into a marriage. All of these are questions that can still guide us uh, as we enter into new technologies.
2: So how long will it be before there's an artificial womb?
0: Yeah, you know, at the speed of technology right now, I'm not
2: surprised if we're talking 20 years. Think of what kind of world it will be yeah. if one can completely divorce sex from reproduction. We really have uh, entered into a brave new world.
0: Indeed. Yeah, it's a great title. And indeed, uh, it makes probably a lot of our listeners think of movies like The Matrix and other, other ones that Hollywood is actually a precursor in some ways to some of these sorts of technologies. and. You know, while whether or not we're human beings are going to be reproduced to be made batteries for an artificial, you know, computer intelligence, that's a different question. The ones we need to be thinking about right now is when have we crossed over the principles of Scripture and undermined what it means to be human, essentially? And, And have we just are we going to make human beings just commodities?
2: Well, if if the the unborn have no rights and if we're able to do what you just described, then you could have a smorgasbord of unborn options in front of you and you select which one you want Mm -hmm. and those that are not selected are disposed.
1: That's right, yeah,
0: designer babies and throwaway babies. Scary place to be.
1: Dr. Lederbach, this is a remarkable conversation that we've only just kicked up the dust on and I know we have many more things we can talk about. So we look forward to future episodes, but thank you for being with us today. My pleasure, thanks guys.
2: Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you are in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you are called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for Ask the Profs. Dr. Quinn, we received a question from a listener. Here it is. In our polarized time, doctrine is often used to designate who is outside the camp, so to speak. To what degree, though, ought Christians enjoy and even celebrate doctrinal diversity within the local church? What are the potential
1: benefits of doing so? That's a good question. And it's a tricky one, because when you talk about outside the camp, that's some pretty strong language. But the question also asks about within the local church. So let me go at it this way. I I tend to identify myself as a Catholic evangelical Baptist. With a small C Catholic. With a small C Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, but a Catholic evangelical Baptist. And here's what I mean by that. I think this is really helpful for us to think through, because it does outline, Dr. Keithley, these theological triage layers that you speak of so often and so well, when we say we're Catholic, a Catholic evangelical Baptist, that just means that we hold on to what we would understand to be the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definitions of, definition of Christ— this is what we do believe to be that deposit about the gospel that has been handed down, and it's important, especially for Baptists, to, to hold on to that. Because I like to think that if the apostles were to show up at my church on any given Sunday, they would recognize what's going on. It would sound like the same message. It would feel like the same gospel. You know, I'm so Catholic in that sense, evangelical in the sense that I truly do affirm the solas of the Reformation and what took place in reaction to Roman Catholicism in the 16th century and following. But then at the same time, we have to to denominate ourselves or to tradition ourselves in a particular way. And that, that's the Baptist part. So a Catholic evangelical Baptist. So then when it comes to something outside the camp, it depends on which one of those circles we're talking about. You're outside of the camp at the Catholic level if you're denying the deity of Jesus. If or the Trinity. Sin. Or the Trinity at all. Yeah. Exactly. Anything that would undermine... Uh, that, that Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father are equal and one together, that they share in the same nest, uh, nature and essence as well as with the Spirit. So those are the things that would set you outside the camp. At the evangelical level uh, and then the Baptist level, there are other examples that would do the same thing. Let's just talk about Baptists, for example. Uh, we're, we call ourselves Baptists for a reason. So you would step outside that camp doesn't mean that you're unchristian necessarily, but you step outside that camp if all of a sudden you decide that you don't believe in believer's baptism. You believe in a, yeah. a pieto baptism or uh, baptism of infants. The
2: great gift I think that Baptists uh, give to Christendom is the call to a regenerate church membership. Yeah, exactly. And and if you're going to practice infant baptism, by
1: That's... its very nature, right, uh, you've decided that, no that. You know, well, right. and so you undermine. It's going, to be, it's going to be tough to plant a church. That's right. You undermine the very logic of our polity at that point. But here's where to the to the listener's question about diversity, even as Baptists, so we can sign the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and maybe even some other confessional documents as part of our local church or assembly. But we may just a, just disagree on uh, the nature of free will versus God's election. We may disagree on. Uh, our view of the spiritual gifts, where we may disagree on exactly what's taking place at the Lord's Supper. And these are just fun and good and important conversations to have that we don't need to break fellowship over, nor do we need to create a new denomination over. So the question about outside the camp, it really depends on, are we talking about the Catholic layer, the evangelical layer, the Baptist layer, or are we talking about something else entirely?
2: Yeah, and and as the listener points out, that sometimes doctrines have been... Uh, the matters over which people have divided. The interesting thing that we see happening today is uh, the phenomenon of people who hold to similar doctrinal convictions, and yet we find them dividing over social and political issues. Um, It's remarkable how many people have left their churches over vaccines and masks. These are not doctrinal issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, these, These are something altogether different and so that's a matter for another conversation, but it's going on.
1: It definitely is. And it's and it's one where we can talk about doctrinal diversity, perhaps with uh, much less emotional charge even than we do about vaccine diversity or masks or whatever the case is, but uh, for another conversation. And at the same time, uh, let the great commandments of loving God and love our neighbor always direct us in those moral matters and decisions. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, Do us a huge favor, go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or share the episode with a friend. We look forward to seeing you next time.